you have a Bible with you today, please open it to Matthew chapter 6. We'll soon be reading starting in verse 7. If you don't have one with you, you can borrow uh, one from the pocket of the pew in front of you, and in that black Bible you can find the passage that we'll be reading from this morning on page 761. Prayer is probably, if not the foundational, one of the two foundational disciplines in the Christian life. If you want to consider the two most foundational sort of principles or characteristics that a a Christian has who is growing as a disciple, it's likely to be Bible intake and prayer. Bible intake, whether it's through sermons and studies, through your own private studies, studying with other people, and then praying about those things. Every other discipline grows off of these two. Yet it's often well noted that prayer is thought of as one of the most neglected of Christian disciplines. Christians find prayer difficult to maintain. Now, I'm not really sure for all of the reasons behind this, and certainly the reasons that that you might struggle with prayer are different than the reasons that somebody else might struggle with prayer. There are a number of possibilities. One is time. We think that prayer requires a great deal of time, and we are pressed for time. Almost all of us have a press for time in one way, shape, or form. Some people just feel really insecure about what they're saying. They're not sure what they're supposed to say or how they're supposed to say it. Some, I would have to believe, don't truly believe and don't truly trust in the power of prayer. They think that it's something that, that could possibly be helpful, but they, they truly knew that it was effective and good, that God would actually intercede in the world and, and attune himself to your prayers. Certainly, more people would pray. It could just be that you don't have adequate theological training or teaching. It's never been something that's been put before you before. I don't know, maybe something else. There are a number of reasons why. We are a people who ought to be marked by prayer, and we're often not a people who are marked by that. Every religion has this sort of form of prayer, whether it's very formal in time and in content, like Islam, or whether even it's just secular people who go and seek those self-help books where they will utter things to themselves to help gird up their own loins in the secular way of making sure that they feel better about themselves and that they can accomplish what's in front of them. The same screeds that that you can find in almost any self-help book, everybody has this form of prayer. Some of these are quite formal, as we've said. Some of them are quite long. There were and are even among Orthodox believers in Judaism these sort of 18 benedictions, which are incredibly detailed and incredibly long. You're supposed to pray them twice a day. Many people can't find time to do that three times a day, and you would have ascended the hill of God almost. I'm not sure what keeps many of you back from having better prayer lives. If you're anything like the rest of the population, and you almost certainly are, you can probably do better when it comes to prayer. Whatever it is that holds you back, though, Jesus seeks here today to sort of liberate you from those hindrances. Jesus is insisting upon the importance of prayer. He assumes that you're going to be praying. Notice when he talks like this, he says, when you pray. Those are the very words we're going to open with. When you pray, assuming that you're going to be praying. This section of prayer and the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, is the central bit of the Sermon on the Mount. It is literally central to all of the ethics that he wants to place before us. Everything centrally falls back upon prayer. This prayer and and praying in general is something that he will mention a couple more times in the sermon. It is incredibly important. And therefore, 
It is not just a central facet of the sermon, but it is a central facet of our lives. But it need not be difficult. Jesus is seeking to help us in prayer, to help us understand better how to pray and what to pray. And his words, my prayer is, will be helpful indeed for us today. Let us read from verse 7 to verse 15 in Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. From this, we are given, you know, at least in the very beginning of this particular section, a very clear demonstration of how not to pray. So the first thing we need to talk about is how we are not to pray. In a word, we're not to pray like Gentiles do. We're not to pray like the rest of the people of the world do who do not know the Lord and who do not know our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the the word that's used here is empty phrases, and the idea is that they just heap empty phrases upon empty phrases upon these these babbling sort of things in order to do a couple of different things. Get get their God's attention to to make sure that he knows that they have needs and and wants to address them. And sometimes it's just to, to sort of browbeat the God so that he would make them want to shut up. There's a way to get your, your prayers answered. They might know of your sincerity. They might take notice of you. The focus seems to be on the amount of prayer for them. The more prayer that you can give, the more words you can speak, the more assured you're going to be that the gods will hear and that they will respond. More is better. And quite frankly, Christians aren't far from this. We don't want to babble on and on, but we do consider that time is an important factor when it comes to, to knowing how we're supposed to spend time in prayer. We, we, we kind of have guidelines given to us. If you go to a number of Christian books, they'll say that you're supposed to you know, spend, spend 30 minutes in prayer, spend this time in prayer. But Jesus seems to emphasize that it's not these sort of empty phrases that are given up. Don't, don't worry about spending time in prayer, spending prayer in prayer. You were meant to pray before God. Luther famously said that he was so busy that he has to spend the first three hours in prayer. And, and it's easy as a Christian to read something like that and be like, I can't do that. I ain't got three hours to spend in prayer. And Luther's point is, even though his day is so full, he is going to spend those three hours in prayer. Man, we're not constituted like Luther. I don't know many people who can pull that off. We think that people who spend lots and lots of time in prayer are holier than others. And Jesus, I think, is at least cautioning us against that thought. It could be that they are. It could be that they have that much to say. But Jesus wants to warn us that time is not the the thing that is gauging the quality of prayer. Further, we can be lulled into thinking that God will only hear us or act if we somehow prove ourselves by making sure that our 
Our prayers are solid. Our prayers are eloquent. If we badger him enough, he will give in. If we use up endless words and complaints and requests before him, Jesus says no, I think, to almost all of this. The issue is not time, but it's sincerity and intent. It's not the amount of prayer that matters, but it's the faith of prayer that matters. And this is demonstrated by the very words that Jesus used. He says, you are to call God Father. Call him Father. The implication of this is quite clearly that he is in the business of caring for you and helping for you and providing for you. Now, there's going to be a wrong way that we attach fatherhood to God as though we are looking at him only as we look at one of our fathers, but there are applications from that as well, and that is that God is meant to, just like our earthly fathers, watch out for us and care for us and provide for us and protect us. He's in the business of doing this kind of thing, and he does so without, without the sin and the limitations of our earthly fathers. Even when they have the best intentions, they cannot always give what is best. You are to call on God who is Father. And what, what's more, Jesus says, you're not to just give up these empty phrases. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. God's attention is already on you. He's already heard your heart. He already knows what you're thinking. He already knows where you have lack. You don't need to plea. You don't need to pry. God already knows. He sees. He follows you. He understands who you are. His attention is already yours, Christian. Trust in that. And he has your needs in mind. He is caring and he is concerned. He's not cold and distant, but a father who is near to you and already knows your needs and is already answering them even before you ask. Isaiah 65, 24, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. So come to God and speak your mind. He's not a man that you have to butter him up to get a response from him. He's not a reluctant giver, but he is a devoted father who is kindly, who desires to hear your requests. And we might want to stop and ask a pretty good question. If God knows what we want and he knows we're going to speak, and Jesus tells us very clearly, before you come to announce anything, he already knows what you're going to ask. Why? Why ask? As every parent of a young child knows, we have trouble with our kids, especially the young ones, when it comes to talking to us. Every once in a while, they'll break down. They'll throw something, or they'll... they'll <laughs> my youngest just falls in a, a heap and cries. Uh, it's, it's cute if it's not annoying. And, and he just breaks down, and you're like, I, I don't know what is wrong with you. And we, I ask that all the time. What is wrong with you? What can I fix? I don't know what you need. I don't know what you want. And part of that is because they can't communicate to us. And we're prone to think that this is the, the reason for prayer is to make sure that God knows what we need. We sort of project that own parent thing back onto God. We need to, we need to pray. We need to speak to God because God wants to know what we need. And Jesus here is correcting that. He's like, that, that is true for earthly parents. It's not true for the Father who is in heaven. He knows already what you need. We still ask, we still ask, we still utter requests, even when God already knows our needs, not because we need to inform him, obviously, but because prayer is for us, it's not for him. In the end, the question before us is this, do you really believe that God can act and move? 
Do you honestly think that he loves you and that he gives good gifts to his children? Then you would be the kind of people who would ask him. Prayer is for you. You don't need to fuddle with the right words. You don't need to certainly fuddle with many words. You don't need to soften the blow that you're going to request something from God and make sure that you you give him adequate praise beforehand. You don't need to search for eloquence. Just open your mouth and speak to him. A wonderful example of what this looks like comes from one of my favorite passages in Scripture. I use it as a sermon illustration far too often, but you will put up with it again today because I've got the mic and you've got to listen to me. So, in the days of, of 1 Kings 17 and 18, Elijah feels as though he is the only one left as the king has gone over after Baal worship, and uh, most of Israel has gone there as well, and Elijah finally gets sick of it, and he says, listen, we're going to have us a little competition to show who is the real God here. Is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or as he is going to say, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, is he the true God, or is Baal the true God? And here's what we're going to do. You've got a ton of prophets. You get 450 of them. You build a little altar. You put a sacrifice on top of it. I'm going to do the same over here on this hill. And we'll see who gets fire to come down first. First Kings 18, this is what is reported to us of the prophets of Baal, 450 of them. They took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, which means exactly what you think it means, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Everything they could do, they were yelling, they were screaming, they were cutting themselves, showing that they were were sincere about what they were asking. They really, really meant it. They were trying to get his attention. They were trying to get him to act. They were trying to get him to move, and no one did anything. 450 of them. Elijah, one, said this in its entirety. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. That's it. Fire rained down from heaven at that. It's not the deepest prayer. It takes, what, 30 seconds to read? But that's how you pray. Know who you're praying to. Know what you're asking of him. You can dispense with the many words. You can dispense with the faulty ideas of God. You can dispense with the eloquence. Go before the Lord your God and ask him how to pray. Secondly, then, we ought to ask him how we ought to pray, or he tells us, Jesus tells us how we ought to pray. 
To counteract this sort of bad habit of prayer, Jesus gives us what is called the Lord's Prayer, which is a brilliant little thing because it serves two functions. It can serve as a model or a template for how we are to put our own prayers together, that these are the kinds of things that you ought to pray about. But for those who don't know what they really should pray about, don't know how they would use this as a template, the idea is that you can actually just use this as a prayer itself. It stands on its own as, as a prayer that we utter before God. It is perhaps the largest portion of Scripture that almost the entirety of the Christian church has given itself over to memorizing. You can walk into almost any church, and if people have been in that church for any sort of amount of time, they will likely know this by heart, although they will likely quote it in the King James Version because that's what their parents quoted it to them in, all the way back down when Paul wrote the King James Version. So after that, though, this is a little bit different. We're going to change a couple of things in here this morning to kind of clarify, but nevertheless, this is the same idea. It's important that we have it memorized. We often hear the quip that there's no I in team. Well, there's no I in this prayer either. Give us our Father. This doesn't mean that our individual concerns don't matter, but it's geared to be a corporate prayer. It's geared for you to be praying not just for your own needs, but for others' needs as well. Jesus reminds us, beginning here, in the very first words in verse 9, that God is our Father, something that we've already discussed. But that's not all. It also says, our Father in heaven. Now, the interesting thing about that is those translations who use the in heaven bit kind of summarize this idea in, in a bad way. It's actually plural here, and people don't know what to do with the plural, but it's actually in the heavens. I think that the idea there is not one of authority. Many people look at our Father in heaven as sort of balancing things out. They say our Father shows his care and compassion for us. The in heaven part shows his authority. But that is more of a modern problem that we have with fathers who don't carry authority. Certainly, if you were an ancient Near Eastern person, calling somebody Father meant that that person had an authority over you. I think in heavens is a reminder that he is not simply our God. Like when we say our God who is in heaven, I'm not just talking about the people who are here with me, like-minded with me. Heavens were, in this sense, the skies. He is the father of many heavens, of many skies. The skies above the middle of Michigan, the skies on the west side of the state in Chicago, the skies in Paris and Madrid and Cairo and Casablanca and Shanghai and Seoul. Our concerns are not the only concerns. Not just a limited hour, not even just not my concerns, not our concerns as Crossway, but the concerns of everyone who calls upon the name of Christ ought to be our concerns. And we catch this when we start to analyze the sermon itself, or excuse me, analyze the prayer itself. Jesus starts with very, very large things that affect the entirety of the earth, on earth as it is in heaven. So we're reminded immediately that we are praying for broader things than just our own personal, individual needs, and the needs even of those who are close to us. The model prayer breaks down into two nice sections, one dealing with God, one dealing with us, three sort of petitions in each one, and we'll be going through them individually. The first one is for God's reputation. God's reputation. The word hallowed is used almost exclusively in two contexts in English. One, to talk about old baseball fields, like Wrigley, 
right? The hallowed grounds of Wrigley Field, uh, which isn't all that hallowed. I didn't like Wrigley when I went there, um, but nevertheless. And then uttered here in this prayer. And the question is, why use a word that we don't use anywhere else here? And the answer is, again, the King James Version, because this is the word that people associate with the Lord's Prayer. And we can fiddle with other things, but fiddling with the word hallowed is apparently beyond what we can do. So I don't mind keeping it, but we need to understand what it means. Hallowed just means to be sanctified. It's the same word that we use for sanctification and and for holiness. It just means that God is different. He is utterly unique. He is separate from every other being in the world. He is alone and glorious. And we are told that that is what we are to pray for. That God's reputation is sort of standing alone, is utterly distinct from all other things, might be known and understood by all people. That his name would have the right reputation associated with it. When you hear the names of certain people, you automatically conjure in your mind certain attributes or images of those people, whether it's Michael Jordan or Paul McCartney or Joseph Stalin, even on saying those names, you have, you have a, a, a response to hearing them. You have thoughts in your mind that occur immediately upon knowing them. That is, in sort of a nutshell, their reputation with you. What do people think of when they think of God? What we are praying for is that immediately When God is uttered, people might think of him as holy, as separate, as special, as unreplicatable, as unreplaceable, and utterly perfect in every sense. May his reputation be seen as glorious by the people of this earth. The second thing we are to pray for is God's reign. His reputation first, but then his reign. And again, like we have already, we're going to have here a a question that we might want to ask. How is it that we are praying for the reign of God and the kingdom of God when we know that he reigns already over the entirety of the earth? He upholds the world by the power of his word. We have a sort of bookmarked in the Bible from the first and the last, the fact that God has not only created the earth by the power of his word, but even in a limited sense, once the people of, of Abraham are identified as his people, the Bible goes out of its way to show that he is not just the, the God over them. He drives them down to Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world, with the most powerful gods in the world. And even there, God, in ten different plagues and wonders and signs, shows that he is still the God over Egypt. He is the God over all of the world, which is exactly what the end of our Bible gets at in the book of Revelation, where it shows that everything on the earth is dissolving and going to absolute hell. It's because God is standing in the heavens declaring what is to be. So how is it that we are to say that God's kingdom ought to come? Even though all of his reigning is true, we know that in the meantime, in between the fall and the resumption and the finality of his coming kingdom, there is an allowance by God for Satan's power and authority in this world. All peoples have subjected themselves to him. They have followed in the steps of Adam and Eve and listened to his voice and gone into sin to follow him. So Satan blinds them. He deceives them. He controls them. He motivates them. He models sin for them. He inspires them and he influences them. And our prayer here is then simple, that all of that might come to an absolute and complete end. That God might remove the power of Satan from over the world. 
that all would come under the sway of the kingdom of God, lit and impassioned by the Spirit of God, that God himself, not Satan, would reign over all things, that he would motivate them, that he would inspire them, that he would influence them, that he would model for them, that he would command people, and it would be so. That the whole world would be his subjects, listening to his voice and doing his deeds. And that brings us quite clearly to the third thing that we pray about God, that we would know God's resolve. God's resolve. We pray, your will be done. It's the natural conclusion to the previous prayer. If we ask for God's kingdom to be over us, for his reign to be there, known and felt among us, that that he would be the one who motivates us and leads us and inspires us and influences us, then we must obviously pray that his resolve is our own. If the devil, that false god and false king and antichrist, was to be thrust aside, so ought our following of him. The prayer is that we would hear God's will, see it as right and true and just, and follow it with our own hearts. And all of this, notice that even in praying for God and praying about God, we pray for the good of others. We are praying for the good of the world. It's not a prayer of judgment and condemnation. We're not praying that people who follow Satan have their children's heads bashed against rocks. Rather, we're praying for his own authority to be overthrown, for God's goodness to be seen and loved, and for others to come into that very kingdom. But we ought not think that these prayers are just for other people either. They are for our lives as well. We can't see the kingdom always. We get lost in our sin, we get lost in our needs, we get lost in injustice and in problems, and all of these can blind us to God's control and goodness and open us up to the age-old whisper of the one who would deceive us. So we pray for ourselves and for others. God's glory is such that when we are most happy, fulfilled, content, and secure, it is not in the things of the world, but it is in God. It is not in health and in power and in fame and in money. But it is when we know God and are known by him. Pray that these things are known to you and to all on earth as it is in heaven. And I think the setup of Jesus' outline here is important. To begin with the great things of God, to begin with his glory and his rule, is to set the tone for all that we are going to pray I wasn't going to get through this without mentioning prayer meeting, which I find incredibly helpful and important in the life of our church. Our prayer meetings are set quite by absent-mindedness on my part up to kind of model the same thing. It's not like, like we, we came to the Lord's Prayer, any of the elders and I came to the Lord's Prayer and said, hey, we're going to model ourselves after this, but it's just kind of how it happens. We open up to the Psalms, we read a Psalm, and we pray through those Psalms. And we do so quite intentionally, because that helps to set the tone. It helps to set the, 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 the way in which we focus on our own needs. We do indeed turn to our own needs, but that is framed by God's goodness, his care, his compassion, his kingdom, and his glory. It helps to put our needs in context. It helps to reaffirm to us that God does indeed care, that he has answered prayers before, and that he will do so again and that our prayers are always best when modeled after the very things that God desires for us. Then, and only then, should we turn to our own needs, which God indeed does want us to do, and Jesus wants us to do as well. So we turn, and we pray about our sustenance. 
our sustenance. Give us this day our daily bread. If we took the order of some importance, so we start by praying about God's kingdom and his reign and his glory, then this also, also ought to be very important to us, that we don't pray starting with needs spiritual, but needs physical. It seems that Jesus thinks that the physical needs of people are a concern and, and quite important, and we might want to even say just as important as their spiritual needs. The spiritual does not trump the physical. Your soul is not more important to God than your body. Both of those have needs, and Jesus cares about us, body and soul, as whole people. Today, I think we can probably make it a long time with what we have. I know my family makes about five trips to the supermarket a week, but that's because we've got seven people, and we often just forget the things that we need. And so we've got to go back time and time again. It's annoying. But if we were under the zombie apocalypse and locked in our house, we could probably make it a good long time. Maybe that's because our dog is fat, and if we had to turn toward her, I'm joking, Lucy. Oh, I know that was going to bother Lucy. But even with what's in our freezer, right, without turning to desperate measures, we could probably make it quite a while if we ration that stuff out. And so it's, it's, it's a little bit different for us today to say, give us our daily needs. Our daily needs are quite easily met. If we ran out of food, most of us have options to go get food. For people here many of them would have known that what they, what they were going to eat that day was based off of what they got paid that day. Food was indeed a daily question for them. So this prayer would have been a prayer that God would continue to fund their needs, that, that he, would, he would give to them just what they needed that day. To think that they would have enough to last for a week is quite, quite amazing. For them, it is to remind that they have God's good provision over them. For us, it seems like it is to be reminded that it is God's good provision that we have. That it's not because of our own industriousness. It's not because we, we are smart and capable. It's not because we work to get a good job and therefore we got paid for it. It is solely because God is good to us. There are many hardworking, capable, intelligent people living in the slums of India who have no way out who have to wonder, am I going to get food today, and are my kids going to eat today? You get it, not because of any of those things, but because God provides it for you. And what's more than that, it's a reminder that that provision is still needed for people out there. There's like a billion people who don't have electricity in this world how many millions upon millions upon millions will, will go through this day without food and not know where their next meal is going to come from? So we pray. Give us our daily bread. It's also a reminder of daily, this idea of daily bread, the bread of today. It's kind of a reminder of the wilderness wandering. And God provides manna miraculously for his people to sustain them as they're going through the desert that they are not yet in a land flowing with milk and honey where it just comes naturally to them. And it's a reminder, so long as we pray this, that we, we are not in that land where milk and honey flow yet. No matter how much provision we have, we're not there, and we still need the provision of God to get us through. Give us today sustenance. Give us our daily bread. Secondly, 
we ought to pray about our sin. Jesus says we are to pray, forgive us our debts. Debts are a very ancient Near Eastern way of talking about sin in an honor and shame culture. When you shame somebody, you are in debt to them to give them honor. Our sin, our continually falling short of God's glory and honor, puts us in debt to him, and that debt mounts daily. We are to give him all the glory all the time. So when we fail one time, let alone 20 to 30 years on end every single day, the debts accrue pretty quickly, and there's no way to pay it back. How can we ever possibly repay back God for something that we are always to give him? Jesus says it's pretty easy, actually. Four words. Forgive us our debts. Jesus allows us to pray that because he himself pays for our debts. The debts that we owe before God, he takes upon himself. Dying, he shows the worthiness of God, the honor of God, the glory of God that we could never do, going above and beyond because he had no debt to pay, and yet he pays that debt for us. The question of the gospel is just that. How do we have our sins forgiven by God? How do we connect back to God? How do, we, how do we perform a relationship with God when we owe him so much and he wants it paid for us? And the answer to that is Jesus has done it for us. That anyone who trusts in him and gives themselves over to him will indeed be forgiven for their sins so that they can pray just this simply, forgive us our debts. The question then is, the very next line of that, as we also have forgiven our debtors, is that causal? Does Jesus mean that we won't be forgiven if we do not forgive? Is our forgiveness then sort of payment in order to be forgiven? Certainly, it seems like it requires further explanation, and Jesus gives that to us in verses 14 and 15, which is interesting that he would then tack this on to the end of the prayer. I don't think the purpose of what Jesus is saying here is that you need to forgive so that God will enact forgiveness upon you. It's not a work. God's forgiveness isn't, isn't a response to anything that we do naturally. But rather, your forgiveness of others is there to demonstrate that your faith in God's forgiveness and even your understanding of the goodness of forgiveness is right and true. As David says in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When you understand how much God needs to forgive you, how high your debt is before him, and when you truly get that, and you taste the goodness of him saying, you are forgiven, son. You are forgiven, my daughter. You will know the sweetness and the goodness of that forgiveness. And the one who knows that will then forgive others. Matthew 18, we have this parable of the unforgiving servant who is, had a, has a debt over him of enormous measure. Just wiped clean. And yet he turns around and holds somebody guilty for $5 worthy of what they owed to him. That man doesn't understand what has truly been forgiven him. Jesus wants is for you to be like your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.48 still holds. Be complete. Be a whole person just as your Father is in heaven. If you have been forgiven much, then you ought to be somebody who knows the goodness of forgiving. If you know that your Father forgives you much, you ought to act like him and forgive as well. Your ability to forgive is a central feature of living life as a Christian. 
and is, after all, a response to the forgiveness of God. Lastly, we ought to pray for our safety. We pray for our safety. No matter how much we know we have been forgiven, we know that forgiveness is hard. Sometimes it feels like it's too hard. Jesus knows us likely better than anyone, and so he says that we are to pray. Jesus says that we are to pray that we might not be led into temptation. Unforgiveness is not the only temptation, but certainly it is one of the temptations. We are tempted in every area of life. Jesus has already given us plenty of areas in our lives where we are likely to be tempted, whether it's anger or lust or right speech or care for our enemies or generosity. What areas of this world are we not tempted to cave into sin? But again, this is something of a strange prayer. Because we're told in other places that God just never, ever does this. Why pray for something that we're told that God has already told us he would never do? James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It's kind of like asking God to let a square be a circle. Squares aren't circles, so that doesn't quite work. So why even bother yourself with that? It's completely illogical. And if God doesn't tempt us and we trust that, why ask God not to tempt us? There is a difference between tempting and testing. God does test us. There's plenty of stuff, again, even in the Beatitudes and and in the things that we have read already that seem to test us. God tests you. The difference between testing and temptation is the desire of the one doing it. Testing is to see you win. It's to see you pass. It's to see you get through. You test to prove the quality of the thing. You tempt to break it. You tempt to make it fall. Satan tempts. God tests. The point here is just this. Times of difficulty are going to come. Times of trial and tribulation are going to come. But we ask that we are not pushed so far by those trials and by those difficulties that we would fall. And what's more, we ask that when we are pushed, we don't then also turn around and put God to the test. The phrase here is somewhat ambiguous, and it can mean both don't let us be tempted by sin and also don't let us test God. Don't let us tempt God. This is exactly, again, we're reminded of that wilderness wandering generation. It's exactly what happened to them. Out in the middle of the wilderness, without food and without water, they broke. Several times they broke. They said, Moses, it would have been better had we died in Egypt. At least we had food in Egypt. At least we had water in Egypt. You led us out here into the wilderness. This, this God led us out here into the wilderness just to kill us out here. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 10. And he says, you know, those things were written for your aid and for your instruction. So listen well to the story. He says in verses 12 and 13, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's our prayer. God, we're going to face trials. We're going to face difficulties. Don't push us so far that we crumble. Don't push us so far that we break. Therefore, deliver us not just from abstract evil, not from our even doing evil. Probably best to understand that as the evil one. Deliver us from the one who does tempt us. Deliver us from Satan, who would indeed bring us under if he could.
What we're praying for is our spiritual safety. Keep us from falling. Keep us from being pushed beyond our limits. Keep us safe, lest we be led astray like sheep and fall from grace. The model prayer that Jesus gives to us, the Lord's Prayer, is deep. It is incredibly concentrated, yet it is simple and to the point. It's a prayer in its own right, and yet it can be used as a template or a guideline to model all of our prayers. In one sense, honestly, the discipline of prayer ought to be the easiest of all the disciplines. The harder discipline is to read the Bible and be shaped by it. It is hard and painful to be pruned, to have the the ridges and the bumps in your heart ground down by the word. That's hard. To speak clear and evident words to God of your desires, that's easy. You don't need to take five hours to do it. You don't need to take 20 minutes to do it. Speak to God and tell him what is on your heart. Speak to God and tell him the desires that you have. Be shaped by the word. Do it again. Lather, rinse, repeat. Go back and back and back. And good news, if you don't know what to pray, if you don't know how to ask, not only does the Holy Spirit help guide you and direct you, but you can use the very words of Jesus to do that same thing. As we conclude then this morning, instead of me offering up a prayer, let us read together on the back of your handout the word that is before us in the words of our Lord's prayer. Pray with me. Our Father in the heavens, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Let us stand and sing our song of response, Christ is risen.